0: Thanks. All right, everybody. We are back for chapter six in the final installment of this RGS bonus series that we've done. We have Nick B. B Miller making his return. Uh, ben Jones is making his return from uh, last month's edition. And then we have a special guest. Michael McCord is the newly minted small game coordinator of Tennessee. Michael's here with me in person. Michael, how you doing today?
1: All doing great. Yep.
0: And Nick and Ben, you guys still doing good over your way? Can't complain. Good shape. Good shape. Glad to be here. So I think this episode is the one that kind of gets everybody a little bit more excited than any of these other agreements, such as stewardship agreements and all that other junk. Uh, This one is actually really interesting for anybody that enjoys going outdoors and learning anything about wildlife and stuff. And even when I I announced this series, uh, Michael shot me a text and he was like, I want in on the silviculture episode. And uh, fortunately, we're able to make it work it out, but uh, I'm going to go ahead to the guy that is the, uh, the forester on the ground on a daily basis right now, Nick B. Miller. I need you to go ahead and start off with the def- definition for all listeners. What is silviculture?
2: Yeah, good good, good point, Nick, and happy to fill that in. Um, these days, I feel like I'm behind a desk in a Zoom call screen more than in the woods, but uh, <laughs> happy to be in the woods as much as I can be, or at least uh, helping supervise our forester teams, uh, team of foresters that are in the woods. So, yeah, silviculture um, really kind of in its fundamental form is the practice of applied ecology. It's really the art and science of managing trees or managing forests. So if you look at the silviculture textbook, if you think about silviculture in that broad sense of the definition, it is like agriculture, like how we think about managing crops for you know, the different values that crops and agricultural products provide us, but it's managing forests and it's managing trees for the diverse goods and services that forests provide us. And so that includes um, timber revenue. It can. It also includes wildlife habitat. It also includes uh, carbon sequestration, biodiversity, water quality, recreation. In the broad sense of the word, it's managing trees and forests for those diverse goods and services that forests provide society.
0: And so that makes a a lot of sense. Again, you you gave the forestry definition. I'm going to give the uh, normal person definition. Uh, It's we're going to prescribe cuts and projects in the forest with specific goals in mind, right? Uh, I know that's an oversimplification, but I'm trying to get it down on the ground of how I understood it. Michael, is there there another way that you would add on to that for the average person listening to this that kind of can put that into
1: words? So from, from a wildlife perspective, generally what we're thinking about is providing habitat uh, for the species of interest. And uh, a lot of times what we're looking at is the successional stage. So basically succession is the process of starting out basically at bare dirt, uh, that ground being colonized. If you walked away from a crop field uh, that after decades of crop and within a within the in the first year you'd have crabgrass come in you'd have ragweed you'd have lots of plants that have weed in the name that farmers would cringe at but frankly if (laughs) you know for a quail hunter it's probably a pretty good food plant and decent cover as well but that first you know we start off with annuals within two or three years though we're typically having a forest established there. It may be a very short forest. It may be only a couple of feet tall, but we have a very young forest established. Uh, And at that point, you know, we can make a silvicultural decision to do nothing. We can make a decision to convert it back into open land, or uh, we could do many, many other things that I think we'll probably get into today. But, you know, from a wildlife perspective, you know, we don't have a whole lot of our own tools. Wildlife is a relatively young science. We borrow a lot of tools from agriculture. We borrow a lot of tools from forestry, uh, and we're basically just using that to manipulate uh, a given acre of ground to uh, the successional stage and the plant community. So that—that's what—that's kind of how I see silviculture is where we have much more of a a structure or a place in time in mind uh, for the species we're interested in managing for.
0: Now, Ben, why is it not just simply cut trees? You know, if all we're talking about is regenerating forests and getting young forests, why isn't it as simple as just go cut a bunch of trees and let the trees come back up? Oh, man, Uh, you you gave me a lead in. (laughs) Uh, I might
3: derail this with the term silviculture, which I never liked and for the reasons you just said like silviculture into agriculture horticulture aquaculture it's so much more complex than raising prawns in a in a pond or or growing soybeans forest management you've got there's so much there's so much science of course there is but there are also so many of these decisions that there really isn't a wrong decision and that's where the art of the habitat manager then comes in. So I never loved silviculture because I felt like it always boiled it down to you know you're growing trees. Man, it's way more than you're just you're just growing trees. Um as Michael said, you're you're impacting succession at very at various points from it's a field of ragweed with a few seedlings started to it's a 300 year old forest with uh, giant buckeye and oak in it so there's so much art and in so many ways there are a lot of different pathways you can take it depending on the sets of species that you're managing for that's what what's always been so attractive to me about forest management is um that there's a lot of the art and you get to put your fingerprint on what you're doing and as wildlife foresters which all of us here talking are um, you get to put your fingerprint on, on it with wildlife specifically
0: in mind and and what Michael was just talking about is we still or you guys still a little bit from agriculture you guys still a bit of foresters. Uh, again, coming from the ground level that I'm at is the way I, th- I see it is why we need silviculture is we're not dealing with a monoculture of corn. We're not dealing with one crop. We're dealing with many, many different species that require different elements, whether that's, you know, shade intolerance or they love the shade or they need more sunlight. Wh- whatever it is, you're, you're having to manage for a vast diversity of plants and trees as opposed to just one crop and that's to me why you have to have such a high, uh, sp- highly specific goal in mind when you're prescribing these projects and I'll let anybody kind of take that up and run with it from there but that's, that's how it makes sense in my head.
2: Well, I'll chime in on that, Nick, because that's kind of near and dear to me. And a lot of the reason that when I was originally in school and undergrad that I pivoted from agriculture to forestry, <laughs> originally I went to school to study ag and uh, realized that a lot of the stuff in forestry, you know, you're starting with a, a natural forest ecosystem and you're starting with a really complex community, assemblage of different tree species and plant species and wildlife. And it's just n-dimensional right? There's so many different directions that you can take that forest in to meet a lot of different value streams and a lot of different services and demands that land managers and the public have on our forest. So it's a very diverse ecosystem that we manage. And it's also a very uh, diverse profession in terms of the types of values that we derive from our forest land. But I'll also say it depends on the type of forest that you're managing. You compare kind of lo- lolly pine management in the Southern you know, Piedmont or Coastal Plain, you look at industrial lands, they're, they're growing loblolly pine trees like they were corn. You know, We're talking about plantation rows. It's really more of an agricultural product. It's a lot more simple. It's a lot more human controlled and dominated. And there are multiple value streams that those forests are providing. Those forests are providing clean water, they're providing clean air, but they're primarily being managed for timber production, right? You compare that to Appalachian hardwood forests, natural hardwood forests in the Appalachian mountains. We have the highest tree diversity in the southern Appalachians uh, out of any temperate forest in the world. We have an incredibly high tree diversity. We also have an incredible high diversity of different ecological zones or forest types across the southern Appalachians. And so you're not only looking at a single forest that consists of, of you know maybe 12 to 20 different tree species in that forest. You're looking at as you change based on your aspect on the hillside, as you go from a ridge to a slope, as you go up an elevation or down an elevation, the composition shifts, the natural disturbance of that forest shifts. The way that we think about that as forest managers. Achieving our forest health goals and our wildlife goals changes depending on where you are in the landscape and what kind of forest you're in. So, you're absolutely right that the complexity and the diversity of the forest that we're managing is uh, incredibly high, and especially high here in the southern
0: Appalachians. And then you break that down based on individual states and regions, like you were just talking about our region. Heck, Tennessee by itself is such a, a wide diversity of, in the east you have rock mountains, and in the west you have the essentially the agriculture. Michael, like as a small game coordinator, like how do we incorporate silviculture into our decisions on how we manage for wildlife in a state that is uh, as expansive as Tennessee is and, and just how diverse the, the
1: area is? One, one of the challenges we see is both as a state wildlife agency, but also from the perspective of just land managers in general, trying to work on public or private lands is there's an increasing demand on every single acre out there so uh a lot of times it's very difficult to manage uh for wildlife i mean a lot of land landowners just generally favorably view wildlife but when it actually comes down to accommodating wildlife in a management decision uh the the financial burden of owning land is ever increasing. Uh, Just the the taxes to own the property, there's there's more and more demand on that landowner uh, every day. And it's even more intense in agricultural areas. Uh, So a lot of times where we have opportunity to provide habitat for small game, and small game could be, uh, anything from a gray squirrel that is going to be use, using more of a mature forest type uh, to uh, to a woodcock or northern bobwhite that are going to be using relatively young forested or unforested or non-forest areas uh, is managing, actively managing these forested acres. Uh, they're providing a resource to that landowner, usually through our management activities, but also In a lot of cases, there's a reason that that land is forested and not in agricultural production currently. You know, a lot of times it's either, like you mentioned with the mountains, it's too rocky. Uh, you know, here in in this area, a lot of the ground, uh, we have, we have very shallow, uh, limestone bedrock and it just, it's not suitable for grazing. It's not suitable for, uh, for crop production, and a lot of those have grown up in cedar thickets. So uh, a lot of times those are easy acres for us to get back in active management. Uh, You get out in West Tennessee, especially as you approach some of the bigger river systems, we have areas that are out of crop production because they're too wet. They just flood out too frequently. So areas like that can certainly be areas that we take on management uh, through various silvicultural practices to kind of cater that Successional stage to the the various species of wildlife that we might be interested in.
3: Yeah, you know, Michael, that's a that's a really good point, and it's a a good time to note that we've got tens of millions of public forest acres because those lands weren't suitable for agricultural production, and um, they essentially went bust through the f- '30s, '40s in 50s as folks were trying to farm them, trying to graze them, and uh, they came into public ownership. And that's a, a huge reason that we have so many uh, public forest acres now is it because those lands weren't suitable for agriculture.
1: Absolutely. And it's it's sometimes a little frustrating as a state wildlife agency when you have people that expect you to manage public lands to the same degree as private lands when there's a reason that a lot of this land is publicly held because decades ago when we were able to acquire it, we were able to acquire it because nobody else wanted it uh, in a lot of these cases.
0: And so, I mean, and with the silviculture topic, It seems like not only are we dealing with a challenge of diversity of plant species and everything and even just the region and agriculture versus forest, private versus public. But also, and this kind of falls into the top one, but we also have to manage for invasive species and stuff, too. Like this, this, that's one of the aspects that you guys help. It, you, you can't just get rid of the same invasive species the same way, right? Like there are different types of cuts and ways you manage the land that will allow you to what Nick was talking about earlier, quote unquote, grow trees. You have to kind of get away from some of the species before you can get to the species that you want. Is that, does that kind of fall in the realm of silviculture here? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think
2: I, you know, it's, I think it's, it's useful kind of to to think about the whole kind of picture of the state of our forests too, right, Nick. And, you know, maybe to kind of ground it in that, if you look at, at least here in the Southern Appalachians, you know, the history, what we see kind of across the board, really, this is true on public and private, but it's especially true on public and especially true on our national forest system lands. What we have today is largely forests that are 80 to 120 years old, that were all cut in the early 1900s, between 1900 and 1940, right? When the steam engines came to Appalachia, it was kind of before uh, there was really a sustainable forest management. And a lot of what was happening was just land clearing across the Southern Appalachian mountain range. A lot of those forests grew back and they grew back even aged. And they grew back also with a new federal policy of Smokey the Bear fire suppression. And so historically, Native Americans and early European settlers were actively doing burning. They were, they were burning the landscape and maintaining more diverse, more young, more open forest conditions. Um, But what we have today is a forest that grew back relatively even aged, grew back without a lot of management, and grew back without fire as part of its disturbance. And so a lot of the tree species from a forest health perspective that have been declining over the past several decades are species that are more fire adapted or more fire tolerant. So when we think about forest management and we think about silviculture, Managing for oak, managing our forests to regenerate, and manage for high-quality oak trees is often a priority. This tree oak trees are more fire adapted and more fire tolerant than some of our more moisture-loving trees or mesophytic trees are, such as red maple and tulip poplar. So you look at an 80 to 120-year-old uh, forest. What do you have in the subcanopy? You've got a lot of red maple stems that are like one to ten inches in diameter and you have no uh, oak regeneration, no oak seedlings and saplings that are coming in to replace that forest. So we talked about this a little bit, Nick, when we were out at North Cumberland WMA, and we were talking about shelter woods, right? But the reason that those maples are there is largely due to fire suppression and the lack of controlled burning. And so we might have a goal to achieve our forest health and our wildlife objectives of creating more young forest habitat, which we absolutely do, right? We know that Zero to 20 year age class is so important for rough grass and a lot of other wildlife in the region. But we might also have a goal to manage for high quality oak stands. And so we might come in before we actually do a commercial harvest. We might do something that's called a a mid-story removal treatment, which is usually done non-commercially with herbicide, where we take out all of those one to 10 inch diameter red maple trees that are in that sub canopy, Creating that more diffuse light condition in the forest with that with that herbicide treatment will help get that carpet of seedlings and saplings of oak that like that more diffuse light to establish under that forest overstory. So then five years down the road or so, you can come in, you have what we call as foresters advanced oak regeneration that's ready to release. And you can go in and do your overstory removal, do your clear cut, and encourage that oak to be released into the canopy and also get that young forest habitat that we know that forest wildlife depend upon. And so I think part of the picture to paint when we think about wildlife habitat and we think about silviculture is that it's not really an either or, it's like you're either doing one or the other. It's like, no, we're trying to achieve silvicultural objectives, managing for high quality stands and oak trees, and we're also managing for young forest uh, and habitat conditions at the same time. And so that often might include, Nick, to your point, you might go into a forest and the understory of that forest might be a ton of invasive plants. You know, it might be a white pine plantation that was in an old field, and there's just tons of invasive species in that subcanopy. Before the harvest, you might want to go in and do a pre-harvest, non-native invasive plant control treatment, where you spray herbicide, you get those invasives under control before you do your cut. Therefore, you get your, your natural regeneration desired trees that actually come back.
1: And I would uh, I would want to point out here that a lot of times, the whether a species is invasive or not, that's all about context because, uh, Nick, your example there of the, the white pine. On a lot of our upland hardwood sites on the Cumberland Plateau, we are seeing white pine creep into these stands. And they're creeping in because of that fire suppression that you mentioned. Uh, white pine does not tolerate it at all, but our upland hardwoods are our uh, white oak our post oak a lot of our uh, red oaks they tolerate fire very well but with the with the lack of fire on a lot of these sites it really shifts that species composition now some of these species uh, one that's near and dear to my heart or not uh, tree of heaven is particularly problematic uh, across the eastern u.s and from a couple of fronts it's Extremely aggressive at spreading. It's got a really light wind-borne seed, and from a timber uh, perspective, you know this is kind of you know. Sometimes we have people that say, "Why don't you just let nature take its course and just let trees grow?" Well, this in particular, tree of heaven. this is the genus name. uh, Tree of heaven in particular has a very very brittle wood and it's very dangerous for loggers to even attempt to harvest it even if even if they successfully harvested it there's no market for it at such poor quality Uh, so you know if we go into a stand and we come at this strictly from a commercial value and only cut the stems that have commercial value and there's 5% 5% of the stand, which doesn't sound like that much, but it's pretty significant if we're talking about an invasive species. Let's say 5% of it is tree of heaven and the the, the logger cuts the other 95% of the overstory. Well, what have we done there? We've basically left only the invasive in the best competitive position with full sun to recolonize the site. And what had 5% when we come back 60 70 80 years later after letting things take their course we might have 50 60 70 percent uh of tree of heaven in the overstory and at that point there's frankly there's not a whole lot of hope for that stand because we've also given that decades and decades of decades to build up even more
0: of an establishment.
1: In the understory, but also seeds in the soil. They'll persist, you know, seeds can persist in the soil for years of various species. So, you know, that that's where we need to really be actively managing. And, you know, herbicides can be controversial sometimes. Uh, but the reality of it is for hardwood species, we have very poor success killing hardwoods without using herbicide. Uh, they resprout very readily. We can make them shorter by either using mechanical means or uh, prescribed fire, but it's really hard to kill a hardwood uh, and kill all of them without using uh, some sort of herbicide.
2: Yeah, good good, good point, Michael. And I think, you know, some folks, I like your description of making them smaller. <laughs> You're just knocking them down and they're gonna re-sprout out of their roots, right?
1: Exactly. So that's what we're
2: doing. And I think, you know, some folks listening might say, well, we want to see, you know, young forest, we want to see that that young forest component for rough grouse, but why should we care about managing for oak, right? Um, Something to keep in mind there is that, you know, oak trees obviously produce acorns. Acorns are preferred hard mast for so many of our wildlife here in the Southern Appalachians, including rough grouse. And I think, you know, Ben can really speak to this in terms of some of the research out of the... Uh, Appalachian Grouse Cooperative Research Project, which UT and a bunch of other universities were part of as a 10 year research study into the management and ecology of rough grouse in the Appalachian Mountains. You know, what they found in looking at um, preferred diets of rough grouse in the Appalachians is that one of the major differences that we have here in the southern end of Grouse's range in the east compared to the north is we don't have aspen as a significant component of our tree species composition in our Appalachian forests. That's a huge part of the diet of rough grass in the Northwoods. Here in the Southern Appalachians, we don't have that. And so their diets have always been more limited compared to in the North, but they eat a higher diversity of things. And they eat a lot of acorns and they eat a lot of beech nuts and a lot of diverse things in addition to all all the herbaceous food that they eat too.
0: And so it sounds like acorns, I mean, just like, We've always talked about whether you're a deer hunter, turkey hunter, grouse hunter, uh, squirrel hunter, we all know what acorns are. So, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, Nick, uh, again, referencing back to the project we both saw at North Cumberland, the shelter wood cut. Uh, That, you know, while Michael just talked about herbicide and sometimes that's necessary and everything, uh, is there, talk to me about the different types of cuts and methods and prescribed cuts that you would use uh, to make sure that we're promoting the oak region instead of the tree of heaven region or what, you know, substitute any species that we're not trying to cultivate, you know? What are some other tricks, like define the shelterwood and define the other types of cuts that you uh, can do in place of the shelterwood, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, that's sure, right, Nick, I'm happy to. Um, at that site that we were at at North Cumberland WMA, it was so perfect. Michael, you might, I'll, we'll, I'll just share the compartment with you or maybe you already know what I'm talking about, but we were out in an area where there are, There were three different harvests that had taken place. There was a true clear cut. There was an establishment cut of a shelter wood. And there was the overstory removal of a shelter wood all right next to each other, (laughs) which was awesome for the sake of being able to talk to a group about silviculture, right? And so let's talk about those two practices, right? So when when we talk about silviculture, we usually break up the commercial harvesting side of silviculture. Well, what's normally done commercially into two um, different types of treatments. There's intermediate treatments, which are different types of thinnings, where your goal in that is not to actually replace your current stand with a newly regenerating stand. The thinning is to take that forest stand that's established and encourage its growth through thinning, through partial removal, right? To encourage it to get older. Regeneration treatments are the other type of treatment. Regeneration treatment is implemented with the intention of establishing, recruiting a new age class of trees that grow in and replace what currently is on the site. And so, the two primary methods that we use when we think about you know, managing for young forest habitat are what's called even aged regeneration treatment, where you are, you are mimicking kind of a stand replacing disturbance event. Where your goal is to establish a brand new stand of young trees that are going to move in and colonize that site into the future and you can do that either through a shelter wood or through a clear cut or through what's used in some pine range it's a seed tree cut but we're not going to really go into that because that's slightly less relevance to kind of hardwood management but when you think about clear cuts and shelter woods a clear cut is a treatment where you remove the entire overstory and you do it for the purpose of just establishing a new new cohort of trees, either that seed in and establish, or what's often done in our hardwood region in the Appalachians is it's a combination of tree species that seed in following that cut uh, or come back from stump sprouts uh, or were already established in the understory before the cut, but it's a total overstory removal. And you might do that because you already have trees that are established as seedlings that are ready to release Or you might do it because you really want to be lethal and you want to kill everything on the site and start over. So often when we think about like a true clear cut, it's when that stand is dominated currently by trees that are either of such poor form that they have no value or are undesirable trees. And we do that clear cut as a reset to really restart that stand completely and establish um, a new type of composition to move in and dominate. What's more common as a practice for us is a shelterwood sequence. And so when we talk about doing a shelterwood, it's a series of partial cuttings with the purpose of primarily establishing oak trees and more shade intermediate tree species. What we're doing is we're really managing light, right? So I mentioned before that oak is a tree that likes kind of that more diffuse light conditions. Historically, some of that was provided through fire. But with a hundred years of fire suppression, what we see is that more moisture loving, more generalist trees like red maple have largely occupied our forests. So what we might do in a shelter wood sequence is come in, do that mid-story removal to get that advanced oak regeneration established before we do the overstory removal. Or we might do an establishment cut where you go in, you take out half of the forest stand density to create some more diffuse light. You run some fires through the stand To help get that oak regeneration established and then you come back and you take out um, the rest of what's left on that site to fully kind of release those oak seedlings so there's different types of prescriptions that we apply depending on what the conditions are on the landscape nick and i think you know a lot of folks sometimes see like a shelter wood and they'll see some trees that were left in a cut and they'll say why'd they leave those trees in the cut if they took it all it would have created you know more growth and better young forest habitat Well, often what we're doing is that taking out 50% of that canopy or part of that canopy is the first step in that shelterwood sequence to be able to establish that young forest, right? So often the the ideal would be you do that first cut or that partial cut to help get the right tree species established. And then you come in and do that full clear cut or overstory removal to really release that, that regeneration on the ground. And I'll say, the last thing I'll say, and I'll Stop, I'm a silviculture nerd, so you guys got to hold me back with this stuff. Uh, the last thing I'll say with that is, you know, shelter a shelterwood kind of treatment is not just a, uh, a single action, it, it's a process. It's a series of partial cuttings that eventually get you to that, that, that overstory removal, which basically looks like a clear cut on the ground.
0: So let me ask you, it sounds like we keep making decisions, or at least on this example of oak trees, but you know, we keep talking about diversity, variety. So throughout the sh- shelter would say that we hit our target to what is like produce as many oaks as we w- we can right there. Can you have too much of a good thing there? Can you have too much oak trees there? Is there something that we're trying to mix in with that? Or is our main goal like down here for this instant, get as many oak trees there as possible? And that's, that's what kind of motivates our decisions. I don't know if that makes any sense at all.
1: I think a lot of this has to be site-specific. So uh, traditionally we're going to manage oak on what we might think of as poor to in- intermediate quality sites. Sites that are generally uh, going to be drought-driven. With, with When we regenerate any species of tree, we have to think about that tree's adaptations so a couple of hardwood trees for example well we'll take three uh, with with our maples and beeches, that group is generally adapted they're kind of a sneaky tree they can hang out in very heavy shade for a very long time and when a gap is created in the canopy they try to grab that gap uh, poplar yellow poplar uh, got to be proper here not uh, cottonwood poplar because we've got a broad audience but a uh, yellow poplar or uh, tulip tree is a uh, yellow poplar is a common name for it in, in the east and southeast is a species that tries to very rapidly win the race to the sun so if we had a a cut that was done on a south facing slope these are generally our drier slopes and we have a couple of good years and then when it turns off dry like what we've been going through this summer uh, that poplar would be doing great the drought hits and it doesn't have enough root and that's when you'll start to see that shift that that oak that has not only you know nick talked about its light preferences oak also tends to focus on uh root growth initially versus shoot growth. And that can be one of the challenges to uh, managing for oak is maintaining that intermediate light level for a prolonged period of time for that oak to put down a sufficient root reserve where it's able to put on that big shoot uh, burst. Uh, But oak, you know, its strategy is to try to weather the storm and uh, it may lose the it may lose the sprint but it's going to still be there running at the end of the marathon it's kind of the the strategy there so on you know dry ridge tops around here we see a whole lot of chestnut oak it's probably the most drought uh, tolerant species that we have in eastern hardwood forests uh, as you move down slope you get into more and more com- you know, the, the intensity of the competition gets greater because the site is better. It's it's wetter. it's It has higher moisture content. The soils generally are deeper. So it's much more of a free-for-all and species that are able to kind of sprint versus uh, have that long uh, endurance strategy tend to get fa- favored there. So that's why, you know, you get down near the creek bottom, you'll see a whole lot more Uh, yellow poplar growing there than you will up on the ridge uh and and vice versa for oak the oak just in the bottom the oaks they they just lose the race now it's a little bit different in bottom line hardwood systems but generally that's not something that we're thinking about from a from a game bird perspective so much but uh nick to to hit your
3: question about diversity i think this is where silviculture is a misnomer um We don't have absolute control like we do planting Roundup Ready soybeans, to where we come back and we've got 100% oak stand, nor is that the goal. What we're always trying to do before we uh, regenerate or, or clear cut or start over a stand and create young forest is make sure that that new forest has good representation of what we want in the next forest. And of course, oak trees are really important but there's no treatment that we can do to go in there and have that thing be 100 percent oak there's going to be some poplar in there we could run a fire through it there'll be some poplar there'll be some birch there'll be some service berry um, as long as there's enough oak in there that that future forest and that future forest oak is well represented then we're good you know that's that's pretty good and i think that diversity is really inherent unless you're doing something like planting loblolly pine where you can herbicide it and just plant those plant those trees it's it's not much different than than planting soybeans but that diversity comes along with it just because we don't have as absolute control when we're managing forests and that's a good thing i want some birch in there because rough grouse really love birch buds and they'll be eating those birch buds and eating the acorns and eating the serviceberry and everything else. So that diversity, uh, it comes with it too.
2: Yeah. I think that's really well said, Ben. Um, and even yeah, even if we wanted to manage for one species over another, our forests are so competitive and diverse that we wouldn't be able to. And the goal is diversity, right? Both for habitat diversity and also for tree species diversity to support those diverse wildlife that we want to see on the landscape.
0: So, Let me ask you this because we need to bring this back down to back around to RGS, right? This is the RGS series. So, you know, we can talk about silviculture all we want, but let's put it in terms of RGS and what that means for RGS and developing plans. Is this something that's just automatically cooked in and baked into all the proposals now, or is is it bigger than that? Like, is it. You you guys said it's site specific, it's region specific, but what I guess I'm I'm asking is like, is this how we group like like uh, I don't know specific birds like the golden wing warbler? We know that that gets incorporated a lot into some rough grouse proposals down here in this in the southeast region specifically. That's always popping up. Is this civil culture kind of a broad stroke across RGS to where we're trying to? manage for multiple stuff instead of just one thing at a time
3: yeah what what we need to think about is age class diversity across landscapes we've we've spent a bit of time here talking about like the within stand like the the down in the weeds detail of regenerating a stand what we're most interested in what rough grouse and all forest wildlife need whether they're quote-unquote old forest species or young forest species is diversity and so we're looking at dynamic forest restoration, where we're not just interested in that 100 acre stand of oak trees and how to regenerate it. We're interested in what's going on across that 20,000 acres, so that we're sure we've got a good proportion of young forest, middle aged forest, and old forest over time. And it's almost I think of it like as a, uh, a Christmas tree with the with the lights blinking. Nothing is static in forest systems. So what you cut today, this creating young forest, you can't just chill out and be like, all right, we're good. we got some young forests. You need to start working on that next area and those intermediate treatments so that you can create that young forest 10 years from now. So that when the young forest you created over here blinks out, that's blinking on. So that over time, across tens of thousands of acres, you've got young and old stands blinking in and out through succession. Because... Uh, these these uh, forest systems never sit, stand still. So a lot of it for us is really about the planning and providing foresters with the tools they need to do regeneration, like fire or like uh, herbicide. But in the bigger picture, making sure that that's done over large landscapes and over a long time period so that you don't at some point end up uh, at a point like we have in some places now where you don't have any young forests. It was like, oh, shoot. We didn't get that young forest started and now we have a landscape that that doesn't have young forest represented. So for us, that's a lot of It's that bigger picture and making sure that we're having that mix. And we know from uh, work done in the Appalachians, that's the number one most important thing for rough grouse in particular, isn't just the young forest, it's the mix. They need to have some old oak trees. You need to have some young forest. Rough grouse hens, Often nest in older hardwood stands. So you've got to have that older forest adjacent to that young forest. Many times they'll take their broods to smaller gaps within an older forest, brushy spots within otherwise mature trees. So you've got to have across large landscapes a lot of diversity. That's the name of the game.
2: Yep, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I think the landscape context really matters, Nick and you might have like a 20,000 acre landscape, right? And to Ben's point, if all you're doing is treating a 100 acre area to manage for young forests and oak, you're not not addressing that landscape scale need when it comes to the diversification of those habitat conditions. So we might have a 20,000 acre dynamic landscape where we have goals to create, to maintain let's say a range of 10 to 15% young forests, 30 to 50% more open and woodland forests, and then 30 to 50% more mature forests on that landscape. But that's not gonna be static, right? Part of our programming, part of the work we're doing under our working forest model is taking those functional dynamic landscapes, establishing those desired conditions of that right mix of young forest, open forest and mature forest, That's going to provide that right habitat mix of conditions that are currently underrepresented to benefit grouse and woodcock and golden wings, but also to benefit species like cerulean warbler and wood thrush that need that mature forest on the landscape, but also need some habitat diversity in young forests to be able to go into to meet parts of their life history. So, the landscape scale context and having that habitat at the right proportions on a landscape scale is really the overarching need but that those stand level silvicultural prescriptions what you do in this stand what you do in that stand to be able to achieve those landscape scale objectives is where the silviculture comes in right so we we manage at stands as foresters and you might have a series of stands that you're managing for oak in one way you might have a series of stands you're doing thinnings in because they're not mature financially yet You're going to apply different silvicultural treatments in that dynamic landscape, and you're going to do it at the scale and at the intensity to be able to maintain those desired habitat conditions across that landscape block.
0: And that's exactly exactly where I was headed. Both of you guys answered my question perfectly. So in terms of silviculture on a bigger landscape. You know, like Ben said, we, we spoke about like within the weeds on a site specific thing. But really the challenge seems like it's getting everybody on the same page or like-minded goals on a much bigger scale so that they connect over time and even decades apart. And if we're talking about it's hard enough to get people in the community and society on the page with doing like one cut at a time one stand at a time how do we as conservationists and people that care how do we get everybody on a bigger picture across decades and across a bigger landscape and even across state lines in some cases so it's like silviculture it makes all the sense in the world when we apply it to one side at a time how
1: challenging is it in your guys's space to get it done on a grander scheme i mean from a state wildlife agency it can be a tremendous challenge because you know every time we plan a forest management activity, it never fails. We are cutting down somebody's great granddaddy's favorite <laughs> tree to deer hunt out of yeah. or their favorite ridge to turkey hunt, hunt on. Uh, but you know, one of the realities of it is, is deer and turkeys, we, we kind of throw them around as this habitat generalist, but really, if we're talking about where deer and turkey thrive, you know, we, we talk about them also as an edge species, but really deer and turkeys do best where they have a diversity of cover types that's why they're on that edge is because they can get two different stand ages or they can get forest and field at the same place so where we have that intersection when we're managing for that diversity you know whether we're doing it with the intent of rough grouse and woodcock or whether we're doing it with the intent of deer and turkey uh you know education is a big part of this and uh we've got more resources at people's fingertips now than there ever been but we also have to meet them where they are and go to the places where they're getting their information to uh, to get that information out there, whether they're a, a turkey hunter and they're mad because that's the place they've always hunted turkeys. They need to understand that there's plenty of other places for a turkey to strut and eat an acorn out there, but this is a place that's going to be producing future turkeys. and producing future fawns and this is a place as this forest regenerates that instead of you know for the deer hunter having maybe a hundred pounds of forage out there per acre for that first five to ten years after that cut there may well be five six even seven thousand pounds of high quality food that's growing fawns that's meeting the needs of does that's putting antlers on the head of bucks during that time of year you know this is these are all things that we've got you know both as professionals but you know i'd also challenge you know the the bird hunting community as well you know you're going to run into these guys in the field i've run into them in the field (laughs) if you can you know if you can show them number one that you're you know we're one of them but also there's value to uh to what they're doing you know there's there's value in that silviculture to what they're trying to do besides just acorns because, you know, what's a deer what's a deer gonna eat in June? It's sure not an acorn. Yeah. They're 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 long since rotted by then. We we've put you know we put a lot of a talk on acorns and oak trees in this in this podcast today, but that's because they're extremely important when they're available and it's an extremely important timber species. But there's a lot of other things that a lot of other species of wildlife are eating heck we've killed turkeys with crops full of maple samaras, the the maple seeds and as much hate as we've spilled on red maple today <laughs> uh it, it can still be utilized when it's available so uh it, it, you know all, all these parts and pieces you know I think the the kind of the the th- the theme through this whole thing has been you know diver- diversity and you know make helping people see there's you know, value in that is extremely important in what we do. I don't
3: I don't miss an opportunity to say it. And I won't miss this one. But if I'm looking at a thousand acres and somebody says, I want to manage this for whitetails and the same thousand acres of the adjacent thousand acres to say, I want to manage this for rough grouse. I'm not doing anything different. I'm going to diversify age classes of forest. And that diversity is what's going to get you there. And I can tell you right now, when I'm running my dirt bird dogs, and some high stem density, nasty regenerating cut. I'm always marking down scrape lines within that thing because, in a few weeks after, I'm going to be putting my climber in one of those reserve trees that's out in the middle of that regenerating cut. I'm going to try to kill that buck right where I was trying to kill grouse two
0: weeks before. My deer hunter buddies love me because I'll be out when I'm bird hunting, they get more deer pens because I don't, I don't have that time to circle back and deer hunt that. I want to go chase birds. Uh, But, but ultimately this sounds like, you know, we always talk about get trees on the ground, get trees on the ground. And it's like, yeah, so ultimately we, we need to cut, we need young forest. But when you really dig in and, and kind of sink your teeth into this a little bit more, uh, not all tree cuts are created equal. And so so just by you cutting a tree on the ground, sometimes it's whether putting that tree on the ground fits into a bigger plan overall in the long-term to where it's like, yes, I'll take that tree on the ground better than nothing. Uh, but at the end of the day, you still have to have a long-term plan for that tree to hit the ground and it actually means something later on down the road.
2: Yeah. I think that's right, Nick. And I mean, I think another way to kind of frame that is that people often look at a timber cut as a single act, right? But what we know is that the science and art of silviculture and sustainable forest management, active forest management, which is silviculture in action, is is a process, right? It's not a single act. And so just because you see something today on the landscape doesn't mean that's going to be like that forever. And you might see a partial cut today. That might become a clear cut later. You might see a clear cut. In 20 years, that's going to be a really high stem density forest, right? So it's a dynamic system that's always a shifting mosaic across the landscape that always has a lot of science and a lot of intent from a lot of professionals that are managing Multiple problems and multiple different goals at a given time
0: and so real quick as we as we start kind of wrapping this up I mean, this is the last chapter. I do want to kind of get your guys's take and I have no You know, I, I think by extension this kind of fits into it but the, one of the big things that uh, polarizing topics in society nowadays is climate control and young forests help with climate control right? It it helps with oxygen regeneration and all that stuff. So can you guys speak to that? Because I know that's one thing, uh, as we're managing this stuff, is that falling at all? And is that coming up in conversations as you guys deal with different organizations and state functions and stuff like that? It's, it's front and center.
3: Yeah. Climate's right there. And just like with wildlife, if we're looking at carbon sequestration, that same diversity is important. You need those old forest areas that are holding a bunch of carbon in the bank and you need those young forests that are growing rapidly and they're sequestering carbon from the air at a much higher rate than those older forests and that same diversity prevents you from having some kind of a situation where um, you've got some invasive insect comes in and knocks out an entire age class, and all of a sudden um, you've got a real problem with your forest. So uh, having that diverse portfolio is as important for climate issues as it is for wildlife. You need young forests, you need old forests.
2: Yeah, and I'll just I'll add to that and say that um, what we are seeing at times, Nick, in the in the context of forest carbon offset markets, right? So people can enroll their forest land in a, in a carbon market and get paid for the carbon stocks, the amount of biomass or the amount of carbon that their forest is storing. I think that multi- most of our forest lands right, are managed for multiple uses. They're, dev- they're managed for those diverse, diverse goods and services that forests provide, especially our public lands and especially our national forest system lands. And so it's inappropriate to manage those forests for one value source over all others. And one of the challenges with this debate that often comes up is, well, if you're managing your forest for carbon, then you can't do certain things or you're missing out on certain things. And that's the wrong way of kind of thinking about it, right? Just like all things, foresters, forest managers, land managers are faced with, a, with an optimization challenge of how do we optimize this forest for these diverse different um, values that we have in it. And so carbon is one, wildlife is one, timber is one, recreation is one. And as foresters, as land managers, folks folks are forced to think about how they can optimize for all of those values, ideally identifying those win-win solutions that can accommodate forest health, abundant wildlife, and carbon sequestration on the landscape.
1: I'll throw this out there even though it's not silviculture. you know one of the reasons why prairies historically were so desirable as agricultural land was because our native plant communities uh, are so efficient at banking carbon not just in the biomass in the case of a forest but also uh, in the soils that's where most of uh, the prairies historically had that and uh, that's that's a big reason why the 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 organic matter content in those prairie soils is one, one of the biggest reasons why they were so desirable for conversion to agriculture. Uh, now, that's not to say that we can't put carbon right back there again by going away from something that's a uh, an intensive monoculture crop to something that's more of a natural system. Uh, but also, you know, when we're managing those systems, we manage those systems must much less uh intensively so you know from that side of the carbon footprint of you know we might be doing a disking or a burning or an herbicide application every two to five years to maintain that in an early successional state instead of you know if i'm trying to grow a crop on it or if i'm trying to get hay off of it or uh grow cattle forage i'm going to be over that thing multiple times a year bush hogging it to keep it in a in a palatable state for my livestock. I'm going to be spraying weeds out of it because anything that's, you know, that a cow can't eat is a weed, weed uh, in that system or anything that's competing with my corn is a weed in that system. So, you know, it, and the same is true for our forested systems. You know, they, these systems require a much lower threshold of management generally, especially after we get out of the establishment phase than what we would be dealing with in a... Uh, in, a, in an intensive cropping system. So the, the consumption of fuel, the con- consumption of resources is a whole lot lower than, than when we're doing a, uh, a conventional annual crop as well.
0: So as we, as we wrap up with this silviculture topic, is there anything that we miss that, you, that we, we need to touch on before we wrap it up? Any specific details or ideas or th- things that y- you, know, you guys had in mind coming on before I'll throw a piece in real quick that
3: that sets these apart and it's a misconception. And um, I can appreciate this for many years in, in public service and working for a state wildlife agency, this idea of just cutting for money and to look at that a bit of a different way, it's a real benefit in managing forests that doing the habitat work at a certain stage can result in revenue. Because once we harvest that stand commercially, there's revenue coming in that then we can use to do that next prescribed fire treatment or to do that herbicide treatment. So it's a real benefit to forest management that in doing the work, we put a commodity product on the market. We've got a massive farm bill that's taxpayer supported that pays agricultural producers to take commodity products off the market. With forest management and doing the work, we can put a product on the market. It can provide jobs for the local community and it can give us funding to do more of that work in the future. So a lot of times it gets, I hear it turned into kind of a black and white issue of oh, you're just cutting for money. And for the Rough Ground Society and our State Wildlife Agency and our State Forestry Partners, and for the Forest Service, it's never about just cutting for money. But that is a huge benefit to forest management that in doing the work, we can raise revenue actually to fund more of that work in the future.
1: From a private land standpoint, because that's the world I just stepped out of before stepping into the, the statewide program world, uh, you know, we have an increasingly high demand on land to be developed. So to the same end, if a landowner can derive some revenue from a timber harvest, that that land has value to that landowner besides being lotted up for the next subdivision. Uh, and really that's, you know, we can him and haw and argue about invasive species, but concrete is probably the biggest threat that we're going to be dealing with in the coming decades, uh, compared to all these others. Because it once, once we develop it, there's really not any going back from that. So if we can keep our forests forests and our grasslands grasslands, uh, or vice versa, just keeping wildlands wild, then that's that's I think going to be a win for all of us in the coming decades.
2: Yep. And one of the thing, last things I'll say, Nick, I like that a lot, Michael, is that the need for for good silviculture and good forest management is just as aligned as the need for management for wildlife, right? So you look at um, rough grass are declining, wood clock are declining, lots of wildlife are declining because of a lack of management. We need active forest management to benefit those species. At the same time, oak many other tree species are declining and they need active forest management to be able to be proliferated. So we don't have a choice, right? If we don't manage our forests, we're going to lose oak. If we don't manage our forests, we're going to lose rough grass. So the need is the same.
0: I don't have anything else to add on my my part. You got, you know, you guys are the experts, not me, but I, I appreciate all you guys, Michael, you coming down and, 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 uh, partaking in this conversation, Ben, you coming on, uh, taking time out of your day and, and, uh, speaking on behalf of, you know, RGS and Nick, thanks for coming on six times now and, uh, breaking this down. Uh, I hope that this RGS series was as enlightening as we hoped it would be and provide clarity on some of the, uh, uh, some challenges or issues that we've had over these past couple years. Uh, you know, I, I know I've learned a lot and, uh, cleared up some things in personally i had questions on my end uh nick hopefully that you think that it was uh as worth your time as we had hoped when we did this but i just want to say thank you one more time and and agreeing to come on six times and uh kind of beat this dead horse over and over again
2: no nick i really appreciate the opportunity man both to be on the podcast and also to get to know you more um so I, i think this has been a great opportunity and i thank you for it and yeah, I think as soon as we can, we need to get out in the woods with some guns and some gun dogs this year too, and uh, spend some more time together in that way. I don't think that's going to be too difficult to
0: accomplish. Well, I might have to drag <laughs> Michael with me here. Uh, ben, Ben, if he comes down uh, at all this fall, maybe we can, we can circle around and uh, go see this cut in person at North Cumberland and uh, and talk about it some more. But uh, again, everybody, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll check back again later. Thank you, Nick thanks for listening to GDIY if you enjoyed this podcast please remember to take a moment to subscribe rate review and share with a friend also be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Gun Dog it Yourself. if you really enjoy this podcast and would like to contribute even more to future content please check out our patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundogityourself thanks again and happy hunting